This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. When the Lord called the Apostle Paul to write his word about Christian grace in Colossians 4, He wrote, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. In Philippians 4, 5, we're told, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And of course, we can't forget the love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or the fruits of the spirit outlined in Galatians chapter 5. All of these passages and so many other passages point us to the necessity of graciousness in the Christian life. And these days, that's an important reminder, especially when there is always that temptation to speak truth but not speak it with love. So we're going to talk about this today with John Kratz, who is Senior Pastor of Faith Bible Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. His book is called Graciousness, Tempering Truth with Love. And John, it's wonderful to have you here. How are you? I'm very well, Janet. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor for me to have you. This is right in my wheelhouse, I think, because I'm guilty of this. Sometimes I get all worked up about truth, and I'm not always as gracious as I could be. Is that something that you're seeing in a lot of Christians' lives, that we have a lot to learn on this subject? Absolutely. And I, I've kind of joked that uh, this book is a little bit autobiographical <laughs> because I was certainly right there, especially as a young Christian, just very excited for God's truth and uh, sometimes wielded the sword a little too uh, yes. <laughs> a little too boldly, I think. Well, we're, we're, I can relate to that completely, and it's very convicting. But, you know, this is interesting because you say that graciousness is the antidote for these, I think you put it, truth zealots who club people over the head with their Bibles. Talk a little bit, if you would, about that tendency that we sometimes see where we get so worked up about telling the truth or having a theological discussion with somebody that we forget to exhibit Christian character while we're doing it? Hmm. Well, I think that it is sometimes a a byproduct or a consequence of of being so zealous for the truth. And we certainly understand. I mean, God's truth is life-changing and and transforms us. And sometimes uh, we wrestle with uh, theological understanding, and finally the light comes on. And even though it took us two years for it to happen, we expect all of our friends to get it in the next two days. (laughs) And if they don't, the problem is obviously with them. And so we just need to yell louder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in in our zeal to correct somebody on their wrong theology, sometimes it breeds some rather impatient behavior at times. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, you know, my wife has, has often said that on our tombstones, it's going to say, say they meant well, you know. <laughs> uh, I think we're well intended, but uh, it certainly does sometimes cause problems. I love that. So how would you go about defining graciousness? We know what grace means, and we see lots of references in Scripture to grace itself. But when you are manifesting grace as a Christian, how do we know what graciousness should look like? What is it? Yeah, so it's our words and tones. They need to be marked with pleasantness and kindness. And I think a really important concept is the will to help. Mm. It's basically a desire to be a blessing to the person that you're talking to. And, of course, that comes across in the words that we use, but also in the way that we use them. Right. Yeah, that's right. So now you talk about some of these key passages that help us understand biblical graciousness. What would some of those be? You cite, for example, 1 Corinthians. What do we learn from 1 Corinthians about graciousness? I'm not exactly sure which which one you're meaning in 1 Corinthians, but there's so many yes. that, that speak about, uh, you know, love, speak, speaking the truth in love uh, from uh, Ephesians uh, 415 and the Lord Jesus being full of grace and truth. We think of one of the fruits of the Spirit of being gentleness. So all through the scriptures, we we see these uh, calls to uh, be loving in the way that we communicate. Yep, that's exactly right. We see that in a lot of passages. I think you cite, for example, Ephesians 4.29 also, which is to let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. That's kind of interesting, because especially when I meet Christians who are very interested in discernment or polemics or apologetics of some sort, there seems to be this idea that if you really are to defend the faith, even if it's with another Christian who has certain aspects of theology wrong, then we can sort of be zealous without having to worry so much about things like tone or so much about things like exact wording because our mission is so great. In other words, our, our mission is, is excusing what we might lack in the way of Christian character. How would you respond to somebody who thinks like that? Hmm. Well, that sounds a whole lot like they meant well. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah it does. I think, I think it's good intentions, but, but it's not enough. It's not enough to speak the truth. It's not enough to bash people over the head with the truth and then say, even if we don't verbalize it, but think in our hearts, well, the Lord will take care of the results. Right. Uh, my job is just to, is just to pound, pound away with the truth as clearly and accurately as possible. And I let the Lord take care of the rest. Well, that's, that's not right. The Bible's so clear that, that we need to speak gently and kindly and with a desire to be a blessing to the person. You know, one of the ways, I think, to cultivate graciousness is to think of the outcome that you're looking for. Yeah. How, how do you want the conversation to go? What are you really trying to accomplish? Are you trying to win? Or are you trying to persuade someone of God's truth? That's good. And to help them to understand the truth better and to apply it to their lives. Well, the Bible is very clear. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Uh, A soft answer turns away wrath. Right. There are certainly 
better ways to achieve the outcomes you want to if you're kind in the way that you communicate. Yeah, that's well said. I like that distinction that you draw between, or the question you would put to somebody and say, are you trying to win an argument or are you trying to persuade somebody? And and I would imagine for a lot of people who fall into that, they say, I'm trying to persuade, but I'm just getting frustrated. Why don't they listen to me? Mm. How do you pull back in that moment if you do feel maybe too zealous for your own good or for the good of the person that you really should be concerned about blessing? Well, we, we, we just need to remember where the change is going to come from. It's not going to come from our intensity. It comes from the Lord's work in the person's heart. And Mm -hmm. yes, God uses his truth in the Bible, but it's him who does the work of change. So when I was a young man working in a Christian bookstore, uh, I actually sometimes I say this to my shame, would provoke fights, uh-huh. <laughs> theological debates with customers, oh, wow. <laughs> much to the horror of the store manager. <laughs> but, but I just, I wanted, I so wanted to communicate what God had taught me and I, I wanted to fix them too. Yeah. And one of my coworkers pointed me to Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, which says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so... It's not about our irritation or frustration or anger or elevated tones or volume. It's God using his word gently, graciously communicated. And God is the one who makes the change in the person's heart who hears. Yeah, that is such an important, critical point for us to understand that God has been gracious with us, even as he has convicted us of our sin, and we need to be equally gracious with other people. Such a great point. There's more to talk about. John Krauts with us, senior pastor of Faith Bible Church and author of Graciousness, Tempering Truth with Love. And we'll come back to the conversation on Janet Meffer today right after this. Stay with us. Hi, this is Mike Reagan, author, political commentator, and son of the 40th President of the United States, Ronald Reagan. And I enthusiastically support the life-saving work of preborn. They work 24-7 in the highest abortion cities in America to care for moms in unplanned pregnancies. Would you go to preborn.org today and help save an innocent baby's life? Saving a baby's life has never been as important as it is right now, with more and more states legalizing abortion up to nine months. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound sessions in the nation. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save babies? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. All gifts are tax deductible, and when you donate, you'll receive a story and a picture of five babies whose lives were spared. To donate, call 844- 
855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. That's 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. It's great to have you here and great to be talking with John Crotz, who is Senior Pastor of Faith Bible Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. His book is called Graciousness, Tempering Truth with Love. Such an important subject. Now, when you were talking, John, about the need for us to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit and gentleness, and we understand that we are not to win arguments with people or get so zealous about the truth that we forget to love people and be kind to people. What do we learn just by looking at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he interacted with people in a gracious way? Because certainly he never compromised truth for one second. That's exactly right. And he, of course, is the perfect example in all ways. So you can look at his different interactions, and he is often so kind. I mean, you could even say the fact that he was willing to come and dwell among us was gracious. Just the fact (laughs) that he would humble himself in that way to put our needs above his interests, according to Philippians 2, and to be born and live among us. But he would kindly interact with the outcast of society, with the with the women and the children, even when the disciples are saying to, you know, don't bother the master, you know, <laughs> uh, when you're trying to bring your children, Christ kindly dealt with them. And I, a lot of people might point to Jesus, though, and say, well, wait a minute, Jesus was very sharp uh, with the Pharisees yep. and false teachers. Yep. And he called them a bunch of snakes. He called them all kinds <laughs> of things. Mm-hmm. How, how can we say that that he was being gracious in in those situations. And I think that's a a very important point. But I would want to come back to the idea that Jesus had a gracious intent even behind his clear rebukes. Yes. And by that I want to say he wasn't trying to win with the Pharisees. He wasn't he didn't just have a bad day and become irritated and go off on them. He was speaking clear truth to them to try to help them and certainly to help those who had come under their influence. And so Jesus was still about being a blessing, even when he was speaking very clear truth. I, I think a good illustration of that might be when, it, when one of a, we see a child playing a little too close to the street and a car is coming. We might speak very firmly 
to the child, you know, come back, get away from the street. Right. But the goal is not to make the child feel bad or to win points. We're, we're not irritated, right. per se. Right. We're trying to help rescue the person. That's good. And the same is true sometimes when we have to speak a clear word of truth, for, especially to somebody who hasn't received the truth graciously expressed. We have to be a blessing by being a little more clear and focused about that. Uh, but that's still not trying to win. It's still not selfish. It's still others-oriented. And so I think we can still say there's a gracious intention even behind the clearest declarations of truth. That's really important. I thought myself of the money changers incident. I was thinking about Matthew 23, as you mentioned, how he just took the Pharisees and Sadducees to task. But here is the Lord with a whip driving the money changers out of the temple and zeal for the Lord is consuming him, zeal for his father's house. And this sometimes is a passage people will look at who have more feisty personalities and they say, well, all I'm doing is I'm doing a money changer routine. I'm just trying to clean up the church here, man. I, I know we're supposed to be gracious, but I'm doing what Jesus did in the temple. There seems to be almost this understanding that, well, there are gentle people in the body of Christ and then there are money changer whippers in the body of Christ. And if that's your gift, great, but that's not necessarily my gift. Is it a matter of gift, though, really, when it comes down to it, that if you do have that fiery zeal for Christ, that you get away with not being gentle and humble and exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit? Well, I don't, I don't think that we can say that. I mean, obviously, there are different gifts and different strengths and, and different personalities that the Lord has worked into all of us. There, that's, that's fine to say, but all of us, are to be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit all the time. Yeah. So I just don't think, what we don't want to do is make excuses. Yeah. You know, one of, one of my fellow uh, leaders at our church, he, he says, well, there may be such a thing as righteous anger, but I've never experienced it. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I think, well, that's kind of a, a funny way to put it. It's true. But he makes a point because a lot of people go to the righteous anger card when yeah. really it's selfish anger. That's true. Really, we're just upset and we're trying to make our point. And, you know, it's so difficult when we get into those uh those categories. It is. Now, when you go to Paul, this is interesting because you talk about there being inconsistency in the life of mm -hmm. Paul after he comes to Christ. What about the graciousness that was or was not evident in the Apostle Paul when you look at what Scripture says about him and what we know of him and his ministry? Well, I think Paul is a great model of graciousness most of the time. And certainly he teaches us so many things about graciousness in his letters and in his ministry. I think specifically of the Corinthians. I mean, what rascals they were. Yes. <laughs> and how many different issues he had to deal with them. And then they're following other people instead of him. And it, it had to have been tempting to be completely frustrating and yet we see him even in 2 Corinthians at the end saying, I'm appealing to you with the gentleness of Christ, mm -hmm. the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's my heart for you. That's what I want to do with the Thessalonians. He's saying, I, I, you know, you know, I was like a mother to you. I wanted to be kind and gentle, just like a mother to uh, her children. 
And that reference in Second Corinthians ten one is now I Paul myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Mm-hmm. However, Paul was a human, and Paul did get frustrated. And the scriptures are pretty honest to let us know of some of those times. And I mean, we don't know what that conversation was like with Barnabas over John Mark when they went separate ways. But it it says that they were pretty intense yeah. in their in their dispute. And I think of Paul in front of the high priest when uh, he calls him a whitewashed sepulcher, and <laughs> and the person next to him says, "Would you please hit him?" You know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so so there there are some examples where Paul isn't gracious, but we we certainly understand that we're all works in progress, and we thank God for uh, just just how gracious God had worked in Paul's life for the most part. Yeah. I always wonder what it would have been like when we would have had the opportunity to see him opposing Peter to his face right. in Galatians yeah. chapter 2. I wonder how that conversation went because he summarizes it in that chapter, but you don't get into a transcript whether or not right. Peter you know, erupted at him or if he erupted at Peter. We don't know. But obviously, Peter was called to do some uncomfortable things at times to stand for the truth of the Word of God, but still the same writer who put in all of those epistles those admonitions to us to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit in everything we do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So well, we learn so much from him. Yeah, We're we thankful. do. We do. Thankful for him, but the best of men are men at best. Yeah. We, we know that that we all still have remaining sin that we're fighting with for the rest of our lives. Oh, for sure. Romans 7. Comes. Yep, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So now when you turn to Ephesus, and you talk, and I'm, I'm glad that you raised this issue because you talk about the, the truth lovers in the church at Ephesus, but this is also the same church that the Lord rebukes in Revelation chapter 2, saying, I have this against you that you have left your first love. How much of our lack of love for other people is a result of that same problem? Oh, I think, I think that that's a very important, uh, very relevant word from Christ to us as well. And I think that so many of us, you know, rightly, we first, when we, when we hear this about leaving our first love, we think of our love for the Lord. But the, the very next verses talk about repenting and doing the works you did at first. And I think that those works are more manifestations of, of human love. Hmm. We're, we show love by our good deeds toward one another. And so I think that leaving our first love is really not only our love for the Lord, but our love for other people. And so in the case of the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, hey, it would be better not to have a church than to have a church where people love the truth, but don't love people. Hmm. Because he commends them. He commends them for their passion for the truth. They test the false apostles. They... Uh, hate the works and the teachings of the Nicolaitans, a, a first century heretical group. And the Lord says that he also hates their works. He says, but you must, you must show love and you must repent. You think, wow, if we could only be that zealous for the truth. Hmm. But no, that's not enough. We must be full of grace and full of truth. That's right. Where Jesus says he'll take our lampstand away, which, according to Revelation 1, the lampstands represented the churches themselves. 
Wow, that is convicting. What would you say to the Christian who's listening, who says, what's the next thing I should do if I'm really guilty of what you're talking about, a lack of graciousness? What would you tell me to do next? What should be the next thing that I tackle in my own life in terms of my own repentance to be exhibiting that sort of graciousness? Well, I think that it's a good thing to do kind of the spiritual gut check and and look inside and see where those different manifestations of a lack of graciousness are and where they're coming from. Is it irritation? Is it anger? Is it selfishness, self-focused and and those different things? And as the Lord makes them clear to us in our time of self-examination, repentance is a good is a good thing. Confess those sins. Call them what they are and and begin asking the Lord to help change you from the inside out. That's the answer. Well, John Crotz, so good to have you with us. The name of the book, Graciousness, Tempering Truth with Love. John, thanks again for being with us. It was great to have you here. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Janet. God bless you. Thank you. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today right after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford Today. It is a tragic thing to see God's word twisted so somebody can justify sin. This is true in many areas, but we've seen cases in which, for example, a husband will twist the Bible's admonition for women to submit to their husbands into an excuse for treating her badly or, at worst, abusing her. Such cases are part of the problem of domestic violence because it isn't just a problem in the world at large. Sometimes it's even within families at our own churches. How should we consider this issue biblically? We're going to explore this topic a little bit today with June Hunt, founder and CEO of Hope for the Heart and also one of the world's leading biblical counselors. She is an author and singer and hosts the radio programs Hope for the Heart and Hope in the Night. And June, it's wonderful to talk to you again. How are you? Oh, it's always great to talk with you, Janet, because you're uh, dealing right now with, (laughs) it's what I call, it's the scripture that every husband knows that is not a Christian. <laughs> yeah, right, a Christian. right. It's like, wives submit to your husbands, and yes. it can be literally a hammer yeah. uh, to somebody, especially if she is uh, a, a woman who loves God and loves the Bible, and she's wanting to do what God wants her to do, and she's uh, caught. It's like in a vice, or she... Uh, it's like she, she feels that she has to submit no matter what right. because of that one verse. Right. And the verse, three verses below it, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And those mm-hmm. men who tend to focus on the submitting don't often go down three verses. But how bad is the problem, June? You've dealt with this issue before, I know, on your show and in counseling sessions. What have you discovered about the problem of domestic violence? Interestingly, it is one in three women, wow. uh, internationally, one in three, and even in the United States. If you look at the statistics, 
and you you just think how can that be now that doesn't mean all the time but it sometime within a wife's life or a woman's life um uh as an adult uh one in 3 will be victims of domestic violence so all you have to do is look at a large group of women and you just go one two three mm. one two three one two three and the reason i know about that is because um, the organization Women of Faith. A couple of years ago, um, I was brought in because they this it, they, they would do these huge auditoriums. Um, I'm talking about stadiums or like uh, the uh, uh, well anyway. Does, you just imagine uh, you know like ten thousand or twenty thousand, eighteen thousand, so huge numbers. And um, I, they had sent something to their constituents what are your biggest problems and they did like breaking your fingernails they were making it cute Hmm. and then they got this overwhelming response of domestic violence and they they did not expect it at all so I was brought in uh, for the fall and I could only do four events because of other obligations but uh, the first one I did was in Indianapolis and literally the week that I arrived a policewoman was killed by her husband who was also a uh, professional and uh, it you know it's it, and so they were so excited excited is the wrong word they were so grateful that the, the security team there because they provided security for all of women's faith and the this organization women of faith the point is when i would speak on this topic um, I would just say one in three. Well, there were so many who signed, well, put, put up a number one sign, and she would not speak the word. It, it's like pointing to her chest and then pointing the number one in the air. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm one. Awful. I'm one of the one in three. Now, that's important because most people would have no idea that it was that prevalent. And yet... Um, you know, especially if she hears wives submit to your husbands and um, yeah, and, and think she has to submit to anything. And this is actually what sometimes has been taught uh, internationally. Um, years ago, I remember going to Argentina, and the, the missionaries told me that the pastors were told that they this was in their tradition, husbands, you know... Um, beat your wives into submission. Mm-hmm. So to hear that is, now that was, I guess, 20 years ago when I was speaking. So we've got to understand, though, what is right in God's sight, which is where you started. Um, and, and I want to just say, um, my sister called me the other night, and she she was talking about this thing. Now, she's not a believer like we are. And she had read from the Washington Post some articles that had been written and I think that's in a way why we're doing this but the point being uh, she was saying that how how she hated that scripture and that is the scripture that's the stumbling block for her becoming a Christian she Mm -hmm. told me this years ago she said I cannot accept that I don't believe that wives submit to your husbands now uh, and it's because my mother submitted my mother my father was violent and she resented that my mother submitted to what 
she didn't want to have happen to her. So she right. thought that's the biblical position. So what I said to my sister was, but Swanee, that's her name, Swanee, the verse right before that is submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Yes. So I said, you know, because you teach at Harvard, um, you look at you look at words uh, like a sentence in context of the whole. And I said, if the verse right before is submit one to another, she said, well, I didn't know it said that. And mm-hmm. I said, yes, and, and then I said what you did. Three verses later, it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So he has to be willing to die for her, not her die at his hands. And she mm-hmm. said, oh, my God. Uh. And she said, I had no idea. And so, see, if if you don't know that that's just to be in context of the the bigger picture, yes, there should be mutual submission, and submission actually means a voluntary deferring. Right. Well, I don't think you voluntarily defer to Charlie, your husband, uh, beating you. No. No woman does that. That's not a voluntary. No way. No way. So, so see, it, it, that's, that's even different than the mindset. It should be the way you work with, uh, within the relationship of respecting each other and giving in at times when someone else wants to do something else. And you think, well, I'd rather not. But next go round, I, I would like it to be this way. Yeah, that's really well said. That's really good. And of course, the parallel between the relationship between Christ and his church, and then the relationship between the husband and the wife, you need to understand and people need to understand that context as well. Because if Christ wouldn't do something, then the husband shouldn't do that either. And Christ certainly would never abuse the church. Christ laid down his life for the church, as you said before. You know, uh, a man asked me, just this last week, but what do you do about uh, the scripture said that says the husband uh, is the head of the wife? And I, I said, well, let me ask you a question. Now, I'm looking at you, and you have a head. And he looked at me, and he said, yes, I do. I said, you've got a brain inside your head, correct? He said, well, yes, I, I most of the time do. And, and so then I said, does your, does your head ever say, Hmm, here's a hammer. I'm going to beat the living daylights out of my knee. He said, well, no. And I said, well, does your, does your head ever say, I'm going to hit my elbow as hard as I can? No. See, your head is a protector. The head provides and protects. Right. So think about what the, the implication here is. If the husband is the head, he's going to be the provider, the protector. He's, he's you know, unless he's out of his mind. <laughs> right, right. That's, that's not what we're talking about here is what we really want to say is there's a right way to look at Scripture. In fact, you know, it's even against the law. Yes. To commit domestic violence. It is. And June, Janet, you know that. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to continue this conversation. We do have to pause for a quick break. We'll be back with June Hunt from Hope for the Heart right after this.
the healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life will be without her. The Ministry of Preborn invites you to share your pro-life message through sharing heartbeats. You see, when a young woman considering abortion sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her preborn baby. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. And when she got here, it was just, oh my gosh. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Meffer today? For one $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax-deductible, and 100% of your donation goes toward saving babies' lives. Call now, 855-402-2229, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. Thank you for joining us. It's always a delight to have with me my guest, June Hunt, founder of Hope for the Heart. And you can hear her on the radio. I'm sure you do. Hope for the Heart and Hope in the Night. Such wonderful programs, blessing so many people across the country and across the world. June, we've been discussing this topic of domestic violence, and we were going through that passage in Ephesians 5. And we know that the abusers sometimes love quoting verse 22 about wives being subject to your own husbands or submit to your husband without the context of the whole passage about Mm -hmm. being subject to one another in the fear of Christ and husbands loving your wives. And as you said, even when you look at the human body, the head of your body doesn't say, wow, I think I'll take a hammer and wail on my knee and break Mm -hmm. in pieces. The head is to protect. So knowing that, what do you say to a woman who will call your show and say, I'm being abused, I'm a Christian, and he's not? What mm-hmm. do I do? I mean, this this is a thing because women understand God hates divorce. There's been mm-hmm. a lot of talk about if you are physically abused, is it ever redeemable? Can you ever stay and can the man ever change? How do you come down on those sorts of issues? Well, it's interesting that you use that uh, particular verse, and it's the last um, book of the Bible in the Old Testament. And, and it is true the Bible does say, uh, it's God who says, I hate divorce. But there's another part to that that most people, for some reason, don't know. It's literally, this is Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate man's covering himself with violence. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, so so my, my point is, why is it that they only know about 
<laughs> the divorce part, I hate divorce. See, it's true. It wasn't designed by God. Divorce wasn't designed. Now, there are times when there is a, a permission, but the point is, this is not God's intent, nor is it God's intent for a man to commit violence. In no. fact, I, I did this in, in um, the former Soviet Union years ago. I was there, and I didn't know I had caused a firestorm. I was just answering a question, and all, there was this huge symposium of all these people who had come from the former Soviet Union countries. And then all of a sudden, the seminary president, he said, and I, I want you men to go over and, and listen to, and they weren't used to hearing a female mm. teach. But, and, and so all of a sudden, somebody asked a question, and I had already taught on whatever I, they asked me to teach on. And I just said, well, this is not right in God's sight. Well, you you would have thought that I had uh, ad, ad, advocated adultery or something like oh, that. Oh, no. But, but and, and in other words, this, they had not ever heard anything about this issue. Again, this was in the late 1990s. And so I was, I was watching women get upset with me on, uh, for re- refuting <clears throat> uh, violence and uh, domestic violence. And so... I said, and then so the, the the seminary president said, I want June, I want you on Saturday just to teach the men. Mm. And I said, all right. And so then I asked the men, they were all pastors who do, would te- come to uh, uh, Kiev and they would uh, take a course for two weeks at a time and they would earn their gr- degrees, but they were all pastors. I said, give me your scriptures to support domestic violence. And so... You know, I got their their verses. Meanwhile, I looked up every verse in the Bible with the word violence. Not one time is the word violence spoken of positively in the Bible. It's bring to an end your violence and make the righteous secure. It's words like that. And then what I noticed, um, and this and this really is important. The very first verse that I got from them, from these pastors, and and they were they were not upset with me, but they were you know they they just had never thought about it. They just knew what was in their culture. It was turn um, turn the other cheek. Right. So and so I of course had that verse turn the other cheek. Well, if you look at the context of that. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, turn the other cheek. So what's the context here? It's not Jesus was supporting abuse. He was refuting revenge. Yes. He said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He was refusing the concept of revenge or retaliation. And and so... It was one that is not supporting abuse. So I, I started looking at these verses, and it is important to take all scriptures in context of the whole. And, and that's what we did. So we had this section in what we call Biblical Counseling Keys. We have definitions, characteristics, causes, and solutions on this particular issue of domestic violence, and we have correct the confusion Meaning, it, it may be that you were taught that it was okay to have violence against 
a a wife or in in many men grown men what happens is they grew up in a home where a dad did these kinds of actions against the mother and so well this is just what you do because many men have told me that they said but that was the way my father dealt with conflict he just overpowered my mom and i just thought that's what you're supposed to do now look i am by the way i'm going to say i'm not against all men i i am i think it's wrong to make that assumption there are women who will get violent too? Yes. And oh so yes. Let, and and I remember one man calling me on my radio program, and he said, "My wife at times comes comes at me with a knife, and Ugh. he even went through the pillow." And I thought, "Good night." I mean, oh yeah. That sounds like a mental disturbance. But the point is, um, I I don't want to make this just about men. But what I am saying is, what the Bible says is, we must obey God rather than man. Mm -hmm. So that even if you were, let's say, in a particular country, and there are countries where it is not against the law uh, to to harm a, a wife, well, that may be the case in that country. But still, Acts 5.29 says, we must obey God rather than man. So having said that, I think the issue is you can't put this onto God that he is uh, endorsing domestic violence. In fact, he is against it. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Mm -hmm. So he says, give up your violence and oppression and do what is just and right. That's Ezekiel 45.9. So if you want to be biblical... Don't try to use that scripture, <laughs> wives, submit to your husbands, because you're not going to win this one. That is never God's heart no. on any kind of treatment within a marriage or with any within any relationship. Right. And while it is interesting when you talk about women submitting to their husbands, the context is not bend over and let him beat you. I mean, that that's not what the, it never says that. So you're even making a leap there when you say submission means I can hurt you. That's, yeah, that's no. you know, that's a completely different thing. No, we are created in, uh, in his image. And so this is the, the opposite. By the way, to answer your question, I failed to do that. What does a wife do? Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. The book on wisdom is Proverbs. And that's the theme of the Book of Wisdom. Uh, that's a bo- the theme of the Book of, of Proverbs. So, think about this way. If you look at Proverbs twenty two twenty four, and write this down. You know, I, I realize some people can be driving right now, but or try to remember twenty two twenty four in Proverbs. It says, "Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered." You say, well, it's not, he's my friend, he's my husband. Well, you have a biblical right to move out of harm's way. If you have a husband who has anger out of control, it says do not associate with one easily angered. Now, that can make your husband more angry, but understand, things aren't going to change until somebody changes the combination right if you right. just continue to be abused and there's got to be a change so many t- most of the time it's in this case you would need to move out of harm's way 
And sometimes that can get his holy attention. Yeah. It can be used powerfully by God. And right. listen to this scripture. Proverbs 19:19 19, 19 says, A hot-tempered man must pay the penalty. If you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. So seek counsel. Yep. Seek wise counsel. And, and pray, go go to a godly, wise person who can help you. We have material that it. can help you. Great. Give the website very quickly, June, if you would. Hopefortheheart.org. Hopefortheheart.org. Excellent. June Hunt, we've got to leave it there. God bless you, June. Thank you. Blessings to be with you. All right. God bless. We'll see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today.